From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on KYAQ Central Coast, Queso, Cottage Grove, KEPW, Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle, Washington on KODX, Red Bluff, Redding, California, KFOI, Round Mountain, California, KKRN, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but you have me. Angie Cuero. I host In Deep with Angie Cuero, heard on many of these fine stations and streams. Never one to shy away from the chance to ruin lives and hope Donald Trump has the blood of another child on his hands and has worked to quash the fantasies of a very young girl. We're going to start with the clearly more critical story. Eight-year-old Felipe Gomez Alonso had been in the custody of the U.S. Border Patrol since December 18th. The CBP issued an account of how this happened, how this child died. Felipe, they say, was taken to the doctor for what was diagnosed as a cold, then taken back to a holding facility, then back to the hospital where he was unresponsive and declared dead just before midnight. I want to make every effort to be fair here, to look at the ways that this could not be blamed on Trump's cruel inhumanity to the people on our southern border who are trying to escape poverty and violence. For example, according to that CBP timeline, it was the father of the child who declined further assistance when, back at the holding facility, the boy's condition got worse and he started vomiting. All right, so let's look at that. Are we talking about a parent in full control of a situation autonomous and confident that the fate of his child is completely in his hands? There's no way that that power dynamic was at work. He was already stripped of his power and dignity. He made his choices all in the shadow of a custodial authority empowered by the government, all the way up to the occupant of the White House. Donald Trump has made it exceedingly clear from the top that the people in question are akin to sports fishing prizes, a.k.a. catch and release. And that to take a nuanced approach is to unleash bad MS-13 gangs into cities across the U.S. He has yet to get around to telling us what a good MS-13 gang looks like. So this is a dad who had to know that he and his child were considered as hell. They were already being treated as less than human. How straightforward would you be with your captors about your sick child? Then there's the responsibility that a custodial authority takes on to someone that they are holding. 
Customs and Border Patrol says now that it will change its process in the wake of this second child's death. So what does that mean about the procedures that were already in place? According to NBC, the agency also says it's reviewing, quote, how it holds immigrants in custody so that it can relieve problems with capacity in its area centers in El Paso. Okay, so in less than 48 hours, the CBP started examining and stoppering cracks in its procedures. Imagine if this had been a priority established from the top before two children were dead and... Don't forget this, countless others have vanished into a bureaucratic maze. Imagine if we had a president for whom these children are something more than props. So that's how we get to the NORAD story. So we're going to speak about this this event, which has played for laughs already in any number of venues, In the same breath as an immigrant child's sacrifice to a monster of inhumanity, it sounds pretty petty to link those two, but if you drill down, you will see the hallmarks of the one in the other. Let me catch you up if you missed the initial story. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, had its annual good-hearted tracking of Santa Claus underway Christmas Eve. Kids call into NORAD to ask where Santa is, so some child callers to NORAD were, as is traditional, patched through to the White House to talk to the big guy. Young Coleman Lloyd of Lexington, South Carolina, was such a lucky girl to get the toddler-in-chief in her ear, and he quickly proved again why he's earned that epithet, why it is so appropriate to him. Utterly bereft of sympathy, utterly incapable of imagining what it felt to be in someone else's shoes before he opened his mouth, utterly lacking the restraint to just for once refrain from establishing his superiority of his better knowledge, his brilliance. He was barely into the phone call before he deemed her belief in Santa marginal for her age. Marginal. Okay, this was related as such in The Guardian UK. Quote, are you still a believer in Santa? Trump asked. When she responded, yes, sir, the president added, Because at seven, that's marginal, right? Coleman didn't know what marginal meant, the Guardian reports, and simply answered, yes, sir. Trump closed by saying, well, you just enjoy yourself. Yeah, considerably less important than the death of a young, frightened child imprisoned as a political hostage, yes. But look at the commonalities. In both cases, Trump is incapable of empathy. It takes almost nothing to stop for a moment and think about what is best and happiest and most in keeping with a moment before talking to a starstruck child. It is not in his wiring. Establishing his place in any power structure is primary in his every interaction in the world, even with a child. He could have, well, you'd think he would have, gotten through an exceedingly short conversation without fishing for, and then pouncing on something he feels he knows more about than his conversational partner. Drag it out and then punch it. If she's calling Norad Santa Watch, maybe it's a slam dunk that she believes in Santa Claus. Maybe probing aloud where her beliefs might be made vulnerable is not what an adult would do. 
But Trump searched out that apparent weakness and pierced it immediately. He cannot, he will not, he sees no reason ever to turn off that moment's version of, I see the most, I know the most, mine is the most bigly one in the room. He can't even turn it off for a child because he can't turn it off for anyone. If we, if anybody, could get Trump for two seconds to understand that maybe, just maybe, he doesn't always know the most. He doesn't always see the most. He may not have the biggest in any room. Maybe he could learn to exercise the compassion that would have kept two powerless immigrant children alive. But that is beyond him. Confronted with anything from Santa Claus to human rights, it is beyond him. So shortly after this story broke, he fled for Iraq, where he spent about three hours with American troops. The BBC says that he told the servicemen and women at the base, quote, we're no longer the suckers, folks. We're respected again as a nation. Which is kind of meta, if you think about it. He was playing people for suckers by telling them we're no longer suckers because, of course, he never served. He wasn't going to be suckered like they were. You might notice I never call him president anything because it disagrees with keeping my food down. But Trump has been known to many for a long time as President Bone Spurs because that's how he escaped doing what these very honorable Americans are doing overseas right now when they could be home for Christmas. He got out of service because he had Bone Spurs. The New York Times has an interesting perspective on this. Story titled, Did a Queen's Podiatrist Help Donald Trump Avoid Vietnam? In the fall of 1968, it says, Trump received a timely diagnosis of bone spurs in his heels that led to his medical exemption from the military during Vietnam. For 50 years, the details about who made the diagnosis, how the exemption came about, have remained a mystery. Now a possible explanation has emerged. It involves a foot doctor in Queens who rented his office from Mr. Trump's father, Fred C. Trump, and a suggestion that the diagnosis was granted as a courtesy to the elder Mr. Trump. So to summarize the rest, the podiatrist was a Dr. Larry Bronstein. He's already dead. He died in 2007. But his daughters, who spoke to the New York Times, have told the story of his coming to the aid of a young Mr. Trump during the war as a favor to his father. One of his daughters said, I know it was a favor. Some of the daughters' quotes from the piece the implication from her father that Mr. Trump did not have a qualifying foot ailment. Did he examine him? I don't know. What he got was access to Fred Trump. If there was anything wrong in the building, my dad would call and Trump would take care of it immediately. That was the small favor he got. Now, when Trump was interviewed by the Times in 2016, he said a doctor provided a very strong letter, a bigly letter, and I made that up, a very strong letter about the bone spurs in his heels, which he then presented to draft officials. He said he could not remember the doctor's name. You are talking a lot of years, Mr. Trump said. Perhaps the paperwork is mixed in with his tax records. Well, the stock market is rallying, again, up to 1,000 points the day after Christmas, but that may not be enough to spare Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin his master's wrath. 
CNN has been told by a source that Mnuchin could be in, quote, serious jeopardy, that he is, quote, under the gun. And this despite Trump's calling him, quote, very talented and very smart on Tuesday. At least publicly, Trump has decided to shift blame for the tanking markets to the Federal Reserve. Mnuchin is celebrating the government shutdown with a holiday in Cabo. So the Fed chairman Jerome Powell is absorbing the hit now. Wall Street Journal reports that discussions are underway for Trump to meet with Powell. Won't that be fun? David Lynch over the Washington Post is putting the U.S. market turmoil into world perspective. Some of his valuable thoughts here. A global economy that was until recently humming has broken down. A sharp contrast to the picture just a year ago when the world was experiencing its best growth since 2010 and seemed poised to do even better. Already, builders in the U.S. are erecting fewer single-family homes. German factories are sputtering. In China, retail sales are growing at their slowest pace in 15 years. More from the story. Additional forces threaten to turn what had been a gradual global slowing into something more serious. Central banks that went to extraordinary lengths to boost growth after the global financial crisis have become less supportive, with the Fed announcing another increase in its, in its benchmark interest rate last week. And tensions over Trump's America First trade offensive are sapping business confidence on multiple continents. The theme coming into this year was everything was synchronized. Everything was good everywhere said Torsten Sloak, chief international economist for Deutsche Bank Securities. Now, he says, everything is not good anywhere. Yeah, we know the feeling, buddy. So that's a look through the headlines. Coming up next on the broadcast, Congresswoman Jackie Speer on Jonestown, abortion, women in politics, Me Too, and the White House occupant. That is all coming up on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com donate, and thank you. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. I'm Angie Coro sitting in for Brad and Desi on the broadcast today not long ago. I had the privilege, the distinct privilege, of sitting down with Congresswoman Jackie Speer of California. This marked two related occasions. November, it was 40 years since the Jonestown Massacre. And Speer has released her latest book, Undaunted, Surviving Jonestown, Summoning Courage, and Fighting Back. After decades of service within California, she moved into the U.S. Congress in 2008. She has fought for women's equality, 
Fairness for survivors of sexual harassment and assault. Wait till you hear how Congress used to handle that. And against corruption in government. She's been named to Newsweek's list of 150 fearless women across the world and is one of Politico's 50 most influential people in American politics. And, and, she has publicly advocated for removing Donald Trump under the 25th Amendment. Full disclosure before I go any further, I have voted for her every time I had the chance. She's, I live in her district. So we recorded this conversation for my show, In Deep with Angie Coiro. We started out, of course, with Jonestown. Jackie Spear traveled to Guyana as part of a congressional delegation. It was headed by Congressman Leo Ryan. He was investigating allegations against religious leader Jim Jones, who had started his People's Temple in San Francisco. As the delegation tried to leave, Jones' strongmen opened fire. Ryan and four others died on the spot. Jackie Spear was shot five times. She lay on the ground for almost 22 hours before getting medical attention that saved her life. I asked her why, although it was the attention that Ryan brought to the temple that triggered those murders and the subsequent poisoning of some 900 back at the temple's camp, the role of the Ryan delegation is kind of fading from history. We were bit players, mm-hmm. so to speak, in that travesty. I mean, you had this maniacal man who had captured the, um, the minds of these 900 people and another 1,000 still in San Francisco and in L.A., and he got them to do something that we look and think, how can that possibly have happened? How can, how can 900 people drink cyanide lace Kool-Aid and take their lives. And so Congressman Ryan truly got lost in all of that because he was a hero. He did save some lives. He could have saved many more lives had uh, the second airlift taken place. But it didn't because there was a knifing attempt on him at the pavilion. He was actually staying behind with um, a second group of people. There was another 40 people that wanted to leave, but we only had two planes. And one was very small, and, and well, they were both small, but the result was we had to radio for more planes. But then there was this knifing attempt on him, so they stopped the truck and brought him down, and we left. Uh, and then, of course, the tractor trailer followed some distance behind us and came onto the airstrip. I had my back to it, so I was trying to coax this little Guyanese boy out of the plane because he thought he was going to get a free ride to uh, Georgetown, I guess, but we didn't have enough seats as it was, so I was trying to coax him out, and then there was this noise, and it didn't register that it was gunfire. So as I turned around, Congressman Ryan had been shot, and then he was shot again and, and fell to the ground, and so then I realized what was happening, and I ran under the plane, and hid behind one of the wheels. Um, so it's, it's not surprising that the focus, whether it's a documentary or a bad B movie, <laughs> is always around Jim Jones and the, the absolute unbelievable massacre of 900 people. But there is an untold story about Congressman Ryan and how he was really taking care of his constituents. In fact, I, I want to get to that because I, I don't want people to think that you were just a person working for this guy. 
You guys had a really special relationship. You started out in an atrocious outfit working for his campaign. <laughs> you had white go-go boots. I had white go-go boots. <laughs> I was a Ryan girl in, in um, 1966, the height of Beatlemania. So um, it's actually, it, it's, it's a great story because it, it's kind of what, the thread that runs through my life and the book, that there's a plan for each of us. Sometimes we're not privy to what it is. Uh, in fact, uh, sometimes it becomes more apparent later on. So it's 1966. Um, I am um, vacuuming. It's a Saturday morning. It was my job to do every Saturday. And the phone rings, and I pick it up. Weeks before, I had filled out a postcard. Congre uh, then Assemblyman Ryan had just done a solicitation to my parents. So I took the solicitation and you know, said I had no money, but that I would like to volunteer on his campaign. So I get this phone call. I then um, write down the address, ask my mom if I could borrow the car. I go up to this address. It turns out it's Leo Ryan's home on Alcazar in, I guess it was Milbray. And he has a campaign meeting going on, and there's all these guys sitting around, I guess, planning his strategy, and they're interviewing people. What I didn't realize is that they were really checking me out to see if I would fit their idea of what a Ryan girl would look like. Um, <laughs> because some of them, one was Miss San Bruno, and one was, you know, so. Uh, <laughs> He says, all right, he asked me a few questions. He says, well, go to this address and get your outfit. And this is, I think it was called Hager's in San Bruno. I don't know if that rings any bells with anyone. And so I show up there and they give me this little black and white houndstooth mini skirt, a pair of um, black tights made out of the same fabric as the black turtleneck sweater, and then a bobby hat, the same fabric as the skirt. And we walked around um, town and at grocery stores and political events, um, passing out literature. So that was my first experience <laughs> with politicking. <laughs> we'll probably sell more copies of the book if I note there is a picture in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so and, and then, you know, I applied to two schools for college. That's all, you know, my parents will let me do. We didn't go on college tours. It was just, you can apply here, you can apply there. One was to Stanford and one was to UC Davis because Berkeley was too radical. <laughs> well, in fact, one of the things that struck me about how special your relationship was is that he tracked you down later to do work for him. What, what do you think was the energy between the two of you that he saw you as someone to mentor? Well, I see it in, in young people myself now. Um, you see talent or you see you know, genuine interest and you, and you want to cultivate it and, you know, um, promote it. So, uh, so I got accepted to UC Davis, got rejected from Stanford, and, you know, I, I'm driving up there for the first time with my um, clothing and smelling these cows and the manure <laughs> associated with it. What am I doing here? Um, but it was also 20 minutes from the state capitol, which then was part of the plan. Had I gone to Stanford, you know, I would have done something very differently probably. So um, yeah, it was during my first year at, at uh, UC Davis, he came and taught a class as a guest speaker. And the, the irony was, 
Um, there were 12,000 students at UC Davis at the time. He's talking to this class. He turns to one of the students who was in my dorm of 30 young women and says, do you happen to know Jackie Spears? She says, oh yeah, I do. <laughs> and he says, gee, I'd like to see her. Do you think you know, she's anywhere? She comes to the library. I never studied in the library. I happened to be studying there that night. Um, and so I joined them. They, they had an after-seminar event at uh, one of the restaurants downtown. So he says to me, so what are you studying? And I say, political science. He says, you're not going to learn anything about political science in school. <laughs> you should come to Sacramento and be an intern. So that's how it started. He was one of the people who, uh, there were constituents coming forward to various people in power and saying there's something really wrong with the People's Temple. And before Jim Jones had left San Francisco, he had cultivated some strong political relationships. Was that the only reason that Leo Ryan was the one to really say, we've got to go check this out? So there were defectors who had left the People's Temple. There was the New West article that came out um, that Marshall Kilduff, who's still at the Chronicle, um, wrote. It was rejected by the Chronicle, so he went to New West to get it published. So everyone turned a blind eye to what was going on. The issues around uh, sexual abuse and physical abuse and money laundering and um, all of that was just swept aside. Now, this was this utopia that he was creating. It was African Americans and whites working together, living together, um, sharing a common goal, sharing their resources, so whatever you made, you would give over to the church, and that would, they would feed and clothe and, and house you, that kind of a utopia. Well, many of the members were young adult children of constituents of Congressman Ryan. A lot of young people from Burlingame, Millbury, that area, actually, San Mateo. And so he was interested from that perspective, and he also was interested because one of the defectors of the People's Temple was the son of a um, AP, I think he was a photographer, mm -hmm. Sam Houston, who, who um, came to Congressman Ryan and said, you know, my, my son left the church and, and mysteriously was killed at a railroad um, crossing. And so that all piqued his interest as well. And when you went there, even though quite the show, song and dance was put on to show how happy everyone was and how well-fed and how cheerful, you had a feeling that something wasn't right there the whole time. What was giving you that impression? Well, the week before we left, I spent the weekend listening to interviews of former People's Temple members. They were audio tapes. So I'm listening to them in um, the Capitol. And so I ha had this intensive you know, eight or 10 hours of just listening to all these tapes. I'm thinking, There's th this is dangerous. I mean, they talked about um, guards and guns. And so I was um, in the process of buying a condominium in Virginia. And I made the purchase contingent on my surviving the trip. I ha actually had that clause written into the contract. And I wrote a note to my parents, and the note is um, actually in the book, in which I left this note in my desk drawer, um, just telling my parents how much I loved them and how my life was full. And then I have a PS at the bottom that says, and there's a $1,000 life insurance policy at the credit union. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> 
practical. Very practical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I did have a premonition. But Ryan thought that you know, there was a congressional shield to protect him. And he had a reason to think that because there had never been a member of Congress assassinated in the line of duty abroad. You mean just he had the feeling that because he was a congressman, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we were going to move on with the trip. I, lots of people say, well, why didn't you just not go? Well, it's 1978. Um, I was legislative counsel to a congressman. There were very few women that had positions that were, you know, higher up within a legislative office. And I thought if I didn't go, it would really put women back. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a man from the, the uh, committee staff that was going. So I thought, you know, stop being a, you know, wimp. Mm. There was someone who was up in the hierarchy of the People's Temple, and he showed up with the dissidents who wanted to get out and was getting on the plane did he, ha did he have a reason? Did he have an excuse? that? I mean, th again, that gave you a creepy feeling. What did he say he was doing there? So, uh, you know, we were taking all these defectors out. And all of a sudden, Larry Layton um, jumps onto the back of the, bed, of the truck bed. And I'm looking at him thinking, uh, what's going on here? Because earlier that day, he had espoused how wonderful the People's Temple was, was actually very critical of his sister who had defected and who had written an, uh, an article or had been interviewed in an article which piqued Congressman Ryan's interest back in, I think it was July or August. So it, it didn't add up that all of a sudden he was a defector. So when we got to the airstrip, uh, he had this yellow poncho on. It had rained earlier that day. Uh, but I said to one of the reporters, I said, would you frisk him? I just don't, I don't trust him. And I, I said to Congressman Ryan, I said, I don't want him on the same plane as us. I just, it, it, he just didn't, um, it, it didn't ring true. So he was put on the smaller plane. He actually did shoot two people on that plane. Um, and then they grabbed the gun away from him. And that plane was the one plane that did take off. Mm-hmm. And then arrives this tractor trailer and all the gunfire breaks out. Right. So before um, he didn't instantly, he didn't start shooting until after the tractor trailer had uh, had come to the airstrip and they started shooting. Um, and, you know, that went on for a period of time. I don't know exactly when he shot the um, the passengers in the, the plane, but, you know, eventually the plane does take off and he's wrestled to the to the floor. Mm hmm. When did you realize that your mentor was dead? I think someone finally told me. I mean, he was lying there on the airstrip, not moving. I mean, mm -hmm. it, um, but I think it, it probably wasn't until the middle of the night that I actually knew he was dead. Mm -hmm. Your sense of humor probably gets you through a lot, and even in the midst of this whole description, you talk about the fact that when you were pulled away and laid on the ground, they laid you on top of an anthill, no, and you that, said, I had well, ants. when you're thinking about <laughs> trying to live, you don't think about the small stuff. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you don't sweat the small stuff when you're dying. That was the way I looked at it. I thought, well, you know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that and the fact that some rum helped. Yeah, so uh, eventually I was, uh, 
taken to a tent that happened to be on the airstrip where the most seriously wounded were um, placed. Everyone else had run into the bush and then subsequently run into this little town and, and were held up, uh, were holding up in a bar called in Matthews Ridge. So uh, in the middle of the night, Bob Flick, who was the NBC producer, uh, walked back to the airstrip with a bottle of Guyanese rum and brought me the rum to take some swigs from. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got through the night. When you were finally being tended to, the damage could have been so horrific, a bullet one way or another, and you would have been, you would have been dead. Yeah, so here, another example of how there's a plan out there. So I'm shot on the right side of my body. I'd been playing dead, so I was lying with my head down, so the right side was exposed. So I, I was shot five times, I got shot um, twice in the arm. There's a bone jetting up through my arm in a hole this big. Um, my right leg is blown up, size of a football. All the tissue around the femoral artery is blown up. The femoral artery was not severed. Had it been severed, I would have died in 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. So when you faced rehabilitation for that, were you presented with the worst case scenario, like how, how much you'd be able to heal, how, how well your life would resume? Well, they, you know, because I was on that airstrip for 22 hours without medical care, there was this expectation that I might have to have one of my limbs or both of my limbs amputated because I had gas gangrene through the, my body. So they um, first took me to Andrews Air Force Base where I had some initial debridement and then they realized that I needed um, something um, much more um, urgent. And so I was transported to the Baltimore Shock Trauma Center where they had hyperbaric chamber and that's where they infuse your body with a lot of oxygen. And uh, so you have wh what they call dives and they're horrible experiences, but um, it has the, the benefit of getting rid of the bacteria. Was your mental health being tended to at the same time? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they had counseled me to get mental health uh, care after I returned home. And I was seeing a psychiatrist at Oak Knoll Naval Hospital for about a year. But when he started asking me about my parents and going back to my childhood, I said, you know, time out. I got shot in Guyana. It has nothing to do with my relationship with my parents. <laughs> um, so I stopped going after about a year. <laughs> <laughs> Although your strength had to do with your grandma. That's right. So my um, grandmother was, um, very German. Um, she was a, a Roman Catholic. Uh, she married my grandfather, who was uh, Jewish. And this is 1919, so that was pretty tough. And then in the early, late 30s, I should say, my grandfather was taken by the Gestapo. And she went down to the jail and you know, said, you can't take Theodore because he, he, he served in World War I, he was wounded, he got a medal. I don't know what happened, what, whether money exchanged hands, I never got the true story, but he was released. And so they then left by uh, ship to uh, Shanghai, where mm -hmm. they spent the war years. Mm -hmm. Very strong-willed woman, and as a, as a youngster, uh, even when I was uh, in college, she was always listening to the 
talk shows. She would listen to KGO. She would tell me what was going on. She knew more about what was going on than I was. But she was um, very, um, just a very powerful person. And um, my grandfather had a stroke. And she was a very stocky woman. She must have weighed, you know, 180, 200 pounds. And she would take two buses um, and walk up that hill to spend time with him. <laughs> she was pretty amazing. So after Jonestown, you moved immediately into politics. And although you did not get the remainder of Ryan's term. I lost that election, yeah. yes. I love to tell people this is what a three-time loser looks like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell kids so they kind of look and say, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I lost when I ran for student body president in high school. And I stayed home from school for two days. I was so um, despondent. My mother let me do it, too. Um, <laughs> and then I lost for the first time I ran for Congress. And then I lost for lieutenant governor in California in 2006. Because I wanted to be the first woman lieutenant governor. But now we have the first woman lieutenant governor, Alani Krayakis. When you did get that seat, 29 years had passed for you to take that, that particular chair in Congress. What was, after all those years in politics, what was the biggest difference between that Jackie Spear and the very young Jackie Spear who was at Jonestown? Again, I think there was a plan. I don't think it w I would have been effective if I had gotten elected uh, when I ran the first time. I was 28 years old. I mean, it would have taken me a while to become um, really able to to deal with issues. But because I ended up spending six years on the Board of Supervisors and then 18 years in the state legislature, um, I, I came to Congress ready for bear. I mean, I was really ready to take on the powers that be on a federal level because I had done that on a state level. Mm -hmm. So, but it, I think it needs, there's maturation in public policy making. I, I think Barack Obama, would have been an extraordinary president. He was a very good president, but he would have been an extraordinary president if he hadn't run to be president two years after he got to the U.S. Senate. You know, I mean, if, if you remember, one of the things he thought of was that he was going to be a um, post-partisan president, right? That, right. How, how well did that go, you know? <laughs> uh, I just think that there's nothing wrong with a little experience. Yeah. Uh, witness our president. Yeah. <laughs> Congresswoman Jackie Spear. In our next segment, her battle for abortion rights, including one of the most impassioned personal statements on record in the U.S. Congress. That is coming up on the broadcast. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the broadcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks.
is the Bradcast. I'm Angie Claire. We're in for Brad and Desi. Here's more of my conversation with Congresswoman Jackie Speer talking about the steep climb facing women campaigning for office. Women have, up until more recently, had a tough time getting elected. I remember when I ran for Congress the first time, a woman said to me, a woman said to me, I'm not going to vote for you just because you're a woman. And I thought to myself, how many times do we say, I'm not going to vote for you just because you're a man, right? Um, My favorite line is this, we will have true equality when there are as many mediocre women elected to Congress as there are mediocre (laughs) men. talking about that woman saying that to you, you said she said it with vitriol. And we've seen that directed at women, and I guess it continually surprises me that women address that to other women. Where does that come from? You know, I used to think it came from the fact that girls didn't play team sports in my era, that it was um, a team experience that we just never had. We were on the sidelines, you know, as cheerleaders and pom-pom girls trying to attract the attention of the guys playing on the field. And so we were competing against each other. So I thought, wow, once my daughter is an AYSO soccer, this is going to be different. But you know what? I don't know that it is. I think when half the college-educated women voted for Donald Trump, Madeleine Albright was um, visiting with a group of us afterwards and she said she thought that what it had to do with was more about women not voting for Hillary Clinton because they would feel less than if she got elected. To see one woman succeed is to be your failure as a woman? Exactly. Whereas men typically support each other because they're, the boat rises, so mm. to speak. Um, so I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the double X chromosome, but we've got to get over it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you ran into with sexual abuse in government. I, I want to just read this paragraph because I was so astounded. You've been an advocate for women who deal with assault in the military, uh, in the public setting, in the business setting. And this is the part that they didn't realize about the government setting. Washington system, Washington system has done a gross disservice to victims. If a victim has wanted to file a complaint, they had to go to our Office of Congressional Compliance. 20 years later, to, this is created in 1995, it has been remarkably shamefully successful in protecting itself from being exposed. 260 settlements and more than $15 million have permanently silenced victims of all types of workplace discrimination. This is where it just blows me away. In the Office of Compliance, victims are told they have to victims are told they have to spend a month in legal counseling. Then they have to sign a confidentiality agreement and go through a month of mandatory mediation. After that, they're given another month of cooling off. So for three months, the victims are locked into the terms of that office while still having to work with their perpetrator. What the hell? <laughs> Yeah, what the hell? Um, So that system was created to protect the harasser. And not only were they not identified, they didn't have to worry about how much it was settled for because the taxpayers picked up the tab. So 
after the Me Too movement took off, um, I thought, this is, this is our opportunity. Um, I had attempted two years earlier in 2014 to get mandatory sexual harassment prevention training for members, and Pete Sessions, then the Rules Committee Chair, sitting on the House floor with me, and I'm trying to convince him to just let me take it up as an amendment in the committee before it even comes to the floor. He says, Jackie, we're not going to do that. We have no need to do that. <laughs> Pete Sessions just lost his re-election bit, I might add. <laughs> so when Me Too happened, um, I thought, all right, this is the opportunity. Almost within a couple of months, we had mandatory sexual harassment prevention training, and then I introduced the Me Too Congress Act, which got rid of all of that. So now, victims will be represented by counsel, paid for by House of Representatives, the taxpayers, but to equal the status of the harasser who was already being protected and serviced by the uh, House Counsel, and then no more mandatory mediation, no more non-disclosure agreements unless the victim wants it. And if there, when there is a settlement, if there is a settlement, U.S. Treasury pays it up front. The member of Congress will have to make uh, a full payment within 90 days, or we will just garnish their wages, and if that's not enough, garnish their thrift savings plan, and if that's not enough, we are gonna garnish their Social Security. <laughs> so um, that bill was unanimously passed in the House by Republicans and Democrats. Both Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi were very strong. It then goes to the Senate, and they decide, oh, no, we're going to do our own bill. The Senate's the upper house, you know, so they know better. So they do a, a weak bill, and we say, sorry, we're not going to have you just punt it over to us, and we're going to... So we've been negotiating for the last um, four or five months, and it appears we're very close now to getting 80% um, of what we want. And uh, so it might actually become law before the end of the year. You have faced, in addition to Jonestown, you faced some incredibly difficult life situations. One of them was that you were molested as a child by your grandfather. And then with reference to the, the Me Too movement, you actually had been harassed by somebody on the Leo Ryan campaign. Aside from that, you had to deal with the death of your first husband. There are so many of these personal experiences that ultimately manifest themselves in the things that you fight for. And there is one scenario in the book that is just amazing to me. You detail how incredibly painful your abortion was because your child could not be saved. Your child had slipped into the birth canal much too prematurely. Afterward, there was someone on the house floor talking about the murder of these children in what they choose to call partial birth abortion. And you just got up and you were not having that. And afterward, John Lewis told you that you had made the most passionate speech he'd ever heard on that floor. You took your pain. And you... It's, it's, there's this vulnerability of taking your pain into something as public as legislation. Well, at the time, my colleague was reading from a book, and he was talking about l limbs being sawed off. And I'm thinking, where, 
where are you from? What, what do you do? And I was so incensed that someone who knew nothing about that procedure was talking about it as if it was factual. I was actually getting up to talk about a, a different aspect because this was defunding Planned Parenthood. That's what the bill was. H.R. 1, the very first bill they introduced once they took over the House was H.R. 1, and it was to defund Planned Parenthood because there was some receptionist who had misspoken and they had done a, uh, you know, a uh, entrapment situation. And yet I'm, I'm thinking, and they're trying to, you know, wipe out Planned Parenthood. Meanwhile, Halliburton had gotten billions of dollars in um, contracts, even though it had bribed foreign countries. So I was going to say, you know, this is okay, but that's not. But then when he said that, I thought, you know, I just sort of threw away my, my statement and I just spoke from my heart. I was trembling. After it was over, I was, I was literally trembling. And that's when I saw John Lewis in the back of the chamber and he came up to me. But he told me this, so, this poignant story about how his aunt, as he referred to her, my aunt was staying with us. And one day I, I saw my mother bring her down in a blood-stained nightgown and she never came back again but that was you know back alley abortions back mm -hmm. when you talk to your republican colleagues do you have any sense about why they think it's appropriate to bring they've heard those scenarios they've heard those stories why do they think it's appropriate to bring that back some of them i think are, are very committed to the anti-choice movement. I mean, they, they see it as murder, and so I'll give them that. Um, I'll, I'll let them believe that. But some of them are purely doing it for political reasons only. And one of them, Congressman, um, I'm pronouncing his name wrong, I'm sure, Dijerellis, was having an affair. So he had a mistress who got pregnant, yeah. and then he, he counseled her to have an abortion. And that came out in some filing, I guess. He is an anti-abortion activist, and yet he counseled his mistress to have an abortion, and he's gotten reelected. Well, I have been really selfish. I've been asking you only my questions. Okay. So we have quite the deficit to make up here. What is the status of the Equal Rights Amendment? Mm. What can we do to get this passed? So there are two bills in the House, one by Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney from New York and one that I am authoring. Her bill would start the whole process over again, which means it would have to pass by both the House and the Senate um, and then by three-quarters of the states. Now, when it was first introduced, it, and it's been introduced every session of Congress since 1923, uh, <laughs> Sometimes things take a long time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and in 1972, it was passed by both houses of Congress and was then passed by 35 states. So there was a, another resolution to amend the preamble because they had put a deadline on it. Now, you don't have to put deadlines on uh, constitutional amendments, but for whatever reasons, they put a deadline. So they, they amended the deadline and made it 
um, three or four years longer, thinking that three other states would, would pass it. Three other states didn't pass it. So it's just sort of languished. So my bill would strike the um, preamble deadline altogether, and now we have 37 states, and the 38th state will probably be Virginia, and then we will have the Equal Rights Amendment in the Constitution of the United States. Now, some people, 90% of the public thinks it's already in the Constitution. 85% thinks it should be in the Constitution, and yet we haven't been successful in moving it forward. Why this is important? It is so fundamental to so many issues. And the issue I like to bring to everyone's attention is the issue of Peggy Young, who is a UPS worker, worked there for 10 years. In the 10th year, she gets pregnant. She goes to her supervisor, says, you know, I'm pregnant. He says, well, you better find out what kind of accommodations you need. She comes back and says, oh, I can't I can do anything except I can't lift more than 10 pounds. She says, oh, my gosh, that's a huge liability. You're going to have to take a unpaid leave of absence. And by the way, you're losing your health insurance. <laughs> now, what comes out when she does sue is that men at the UPS who had heart attacks or diabetes or other conditions that needed to be accommodated and they couldn't lift more than 10 pounds, they were accommodated. So this was discrimination. It goes all the way to the Supreme Court. You had to prove not only was it discrimination, but that it was intentional. If the Equal Rights Amendment is in the Constitution, we don't have to prove that it was intentional anymore, and that is a big deal. When a similar topic, I see a resurgence of the quote, support the harasser in Betsy DeVos's <laughs> Department of Education. How can this be stopped? <laughs> so I have a bill. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's called the, uh, the HALT Act, and I introduced it um, in the last Congress and again in this Congress to um, create greater accountability in our um, universities because under Title IX, you have the right to not be discriminated against based on your gender. You should be able to have a college education without fear of being sexually assaulted, and 20% of co-eds are either sexually assaulted or there's an attempt of sexual assault on them. So we wanted greater accountability. We wanted to have um, uh, the ability to find more Title IX coordinators that were um, specific to that function and provide more notice to the um, to the co-eds on ca campuses. Well, since then, of course, we've had a change in administration and we're going from a preponderance of the evidence, which has always been the standard for all civil rights cases, not just um, sexual assault on college campuses or Title IX, all of them. And now she wants to make it beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, this is not a criminal review at a college campus. So, uh, she has a very twisted view of um, what's going on. And you know, between 90 and 97% of those who file complaints for sexual assault are telling the truth. Um, at some point in our culture and in our society, we've got to start believing the victims. Mm -hmm. How does that apply to Bill Clinton? 
so Bill Clinton um, <clears throat> was had sexually harassed his um, intern. Now, it was consensual, but that but well, there is no consent when you have that kind of a power relationship. It's like the military training instructor telling the trainee um, to meet them in the closet. You meet them in the closet, right? So we have created a strict liability under circumstances like that. There is no consent under circumstances like that. Um, you know, it, he was um, impeached, and he was, but he there wasn't um, a trial. I, I, w I remember back when um, my son was, I don't know, nine years old, I was so offended that I had to explain to him what a job was. So, I mean, it wouldn't be tolerated today, certainly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, it was a different time. With a new Democratic majority in the House, what do you think the House should tackle first? We have about 10 months to show the American people what we want to deliver on. And so we need to, I think, act very swiftly to, one, deal with the issue of the high cost of prescription drugs and protect the Affordable Care Act by, frankly, reinstating the individual mandate. The only way you can keep the cost of health insurance down is by having um, an, an individual mandate and a ban on pre-existing conditions. Uh, so that component has to be included as well. And then we need to do an infrastructure bill. So I think if we can tackle those two issues right away, we are sending a very strong message to the American people of that's what we're really all about. That's Congresswoman Jackie Spear. You'll find our whole conversation online at indeepradio.com slash podcasts. Parts of the site are under construction, so make sure you add podcasts at the end, indeepradio.com slash podcasts. And that is a wrap for the Bradcast. I will be in this chair for a couple more days as Brad and Desi continue their holiday travels, so I will see you next time. Until then, good luck, world. Good luck, world.